when we uh, decided to do this series on our statement of faith, uh, I, I gave it eight weeks because I thought, you know, that's a, a good healthy chunk of ch time throughout our year, eight weeks to do a series on our statement of faith. And I don't know about you, we're at week six right now, and I'm thinking, man, this is not near long enough. Now, some of you are saying it's plenty long, but for me, it's not near long enough. And, and part of it is, is because there is so much in our statement of faith. An example, last week, as you all know, Dr. Wayne Grudem spoke here and spoke on the theme of salvation. When I emailed Wayne months ago and asked him if he would speak during this series on, on our statement of faith and the aspect of salvation, he read it and he said, Jamie, it talks about like atonement, faith, assurance, propitiation, sacrifice, Jesus. I mean, he's like, what do you want me to talk about? Uh, there's so much there. And I said, well, you're, you're Wayne Grudem, pick one, I'm sure it'll be good. And, and it was. And if you notice last week when he was with us, he focused on twin themes of atonement and faith and just did a fantastic job. But there is so much more there just in that uh, couple of lines from our statement of faith about Jesus. And so what I'm going to do today is kind of pick up on this theme of Jesus, as Troy mentioned earlier, talk to you about lordship. So we're going to do two weeks on Jesus, what Wayne did last week with atonement, and then I'm going to talk about lordship today. And then in two weeks, when we pick up this series again, because Cheryl Babb is here with us next week, uh, we're going to move into the end times and, uh, and move on to the next statement in our statement of faith and then wrap up with uh, a message on the church. Uh, but I feel like we're just whizzing through this, and I didn't, I didn't feel we'd have to do that but eight weeks has not proven long enough. So the good news is we'll be addressing these things again in the future because they're that relevant to our souls. One last comment before I pray. I said this a couple weeks ago. I say it again now and I mean it. And that is that we are Scottsdale Bible Church. Uh, we are a Bible teaching church. We teach from the Bible. And nowhere else but in a series like this are you really going to feel that. So I hope you're ready to dig a little bit in God's word as to what his truth is for our lives. Because if you dig with me, I promise you your soul will be glad. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace and how you have shown us both of those things in the person of Jesus Christ and how it is through Jesus Christ as we're going to see today that our sufficiency, our satisfaction, all that we need in life comes to us. And so, God, I pray that as we contemplate, as we study about his lordship uh, over the next half hour or so now, preparing for the communion table, that, God, you would give us wisdom and insight, that you'd help us understand uh, who Jesus is in our lives and why his supremacy, his leadership, his lordship is so critical to each and every one of us, not just us as a church, but individually. And so, God, would you do that in our hearts and our minds, at the very least, lift our sights beyond what our lives are now to what they can be when our lives are hidden in you. And uh, Lord, at the very most, revolutionize our soul, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I'm guessing that many of you have noticed this, but it's, it continues to be ironic to me how in the Western world, the very name of Jesus makes people uncomfortable. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, there's just something about using his name or talking about who he is that makes some people get a little bit defensive, if not downright angry. I mean, think about it. You can talk about God, religion, church, and spirituality till you're blue in the face in today's culture, but throw in the name Jesus, 
and all of a sudden everybody tends to get rather uneasy. Uh, when I was pastoring in Canada a few years back, I had come uh, after there had been a huge tragic plane crash, tra- crash. Some of you remember it. It was a Swiss Air crash off of Peggy's Cove. And it was a plane crash that took literally hundreds of lives, including many Canadians. And shortly after this incident, there was a government-sponsored memorial service in which five different faith leaders were asked to speak and take their part. They asked a rabbi to read from the Talmud. They asked a Muslim clergyman to read freely from the Quran. They asked a native Canadian to talk about their particular beliefs. And then they asked a Roman Catholic priest and a United Church, which is the mainline Protestant church in Canada, to also speak. But interestingly, a protocol officer from the Canadian government actually asked the priest and the Protestant minister to submit their text beforehand, and then the protocol officer told the priest to read only from the Old Testament and for the United Church minister to pray, but not to mention Jesus or the New Testament in her prayers. And when they both objected to that, the protocol officer basically said, take it or leave it. This is what we want for the service. So either show up and just do what we say or don't show up at all. As you can imagine, there was an outcry from Christians all around the world with that. And yet the response of some people were, hey, they're just trying to be multicultural and inclusive. But if that's the issue, then the question has to be, then why was the Talmud being read and the Quran being read and native Canadians talking about their faith? Others responded in the news by saying, well, everybody knows that Christians are obnoxious and pushy and they're just not that sensitive and they're not that passive than the other three. And yet I thought to myself, a Roman Catholic priest and a United Church minister? I mean, not exactly the most Bible-thumping representatives of Christianity that you're going to get in North America. No, I think there's something else going on here, folks. I think there's something about Jesus, about who he is, and the radical claims, as we're going to see today, that he makes in our lives that cause some people, especially those who know and yet have not submitted, to just buckle at the mention of his name. They say, let's just not go there. And there's something both powerful and awesome about Jesus that once understood, now don't miss this, either causes incredible joy and relief or antagonizing frustration and conflict in the human soul. It's one or the other. And quite frankly, the Bible affirms this. Uh, The Bible affirms this reality that Jesus is on the one hand good news for all humankind, but also he is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. And so he pleases some and he ticks off others just at the mention of his name. And so what I want you and I to wrestle with in our time remaining this morning is why. Why is this so? What is it that is so special about Jesus and his claims on our lives that have this effect upon people in this world? What is it it about Jesus that can either change our lives like we never imagined or can frustrate others with a nagging internal conflict that just doesn't seem to go away? If you brought a Bible with you today, and I hope you did, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We'll also put the scripture up here on the screen. 
But we are going to park in front of this passage here today because it's rich and pregnant with meaning when it comes to answering the question as to why Jesus has this effect on people that we're looking at today. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, uh, listen to what it says. We're going to read up through verse 20. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Now, there's a lot of things going on in this passage. I mean, that's what I mentioned before I pray, that if anything is ever rich in theology, it's both our statement of faith that we're looking at here today as well as the passage that we're using. But as you guys know, I tend to be a reductionist. I try to boil things down to its most simple form so that we can all understand it together. And as I've been meditating on this passage recently, there is one thing that I think of all the things that it's saying that kind of stands out and pulls this all together, one thing that the Scripture tells us about Jesus that if I don't miss my guess will help us understand why he, he clearly has the effect on the world that he does, good or bad, in the lives of those who are confronted with his claim. And it's our main point this morning, and it's the main point of this whole series, and it's simply this, and that is that Jesus wants to have first place in everything in your life. Why is he joy to some and an impedance to others? Because Jesus, as we're going to see, and this is a claim he makes to all of humanity, to everybody on planet earth, wants to have first place in everything in our lives. First place, not second, not not first and a half, but first place. Before all else, our allegiance is to be to Him. Before all else, our energies and commitment go to Him before anything. Now, if you're tracking with me with this at all, the obvious question for any thinking person at this point would be why? I mean, why does Jesus demand all? Why does He want to have first place in our lives and everything? I mean, is He some egomaniac or self-absorbed person that just wants to be in the limelight? Does he just want to control us like an over-controlling brother or father? I mean, why first place? And Colossians 1, the passage before us, tells us why. Two things it tells us about why Jesus wants first place. And the first reason is because of who he is. Because of who he is. So look at verse 15 again. It couldn't be more clear. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Two things you want to latch on to there, image and firstborn. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That, that, that word image there, that word literally means a likeness or a representation. A, a likeness, meaning that when you see Jesus, you see God. You see what God is really like, who he really is. 
I like how F.F. Bruce says it in his commentary on this passage. He says the very nature and character of God have been perfectly revealed in him, Jesus. In him, the invisible has become visible. And so Jesus, Colossians is telling us here, is the image of the invisible God. He's God come to earth, God whom we can see. And then if that doesn't convince you, notice that it goes on to tell us he's the firstborn of all creation. Now we've got to be careful with that phrase. Because firstborn here does not necessarily mean first in the line of, like if you have a firstborn son, he'd be the first in the line of. No, what firstborn literally means here is that which is, it takes the highest place, that which is highest in supremacy. And so in the Old Testament, for instance, it tells us that Israel was God's firstborn. It tells us that David was the firstborn among all the kings. Now, it's interesting. David wasn't the first king. Israel wasn't even the first nation that God dealt with, but they were the highest, the most supreme. And so if we take firstborn here to insinuate that Jesus was somehow created, or even created first by God, and we know that can't be true because the very next verse, verse 16, tells us that Jesus actually created all things himself, what this phrase then must mean is that Jesus' priority and rank is one of supremacy. you got the image of the invisible God, God come to earth, the firstborn among all creation, he's supreme among everything. It's the always existing God that's being talked about here. And then if you doubt that, look at verses 17 and 19. Again, it couldn't be more clear. It says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Colossians 2.9 repeats the same thing when it says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I know many of you have had Jehovah Witnesses and others knock on your door and they argue with you about whether Jesus is God or not and all this. I'm telling you, the overwhelming evidence in the scriptures is that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then the great I Am statements and, and John, later on in John. And then you're seeing here, he's before all things, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell on him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of deity. Theologians would eventually call this the hypostatic union of Christ. You don't have to remember that. It's just fancy words for meaning this. 100% God, 100% man. Two natures in one person, Christ. You have the nature of God, 100%, all the fullness of deity in a man, Jesus, 100% man, one person, Jesus Christ. He's the always existing God. And now think about it, folks. God, by his very nature, must have first place in our lives. So why does Jesus want first place in our lives? It's not complicated. Because he's God. And God wants first place in your life because he loves you and made you and controls all. And Jesus is God come in the flesh. Ergo, he wants first place in our lives. Now, hang on to that. Notice to me a second clear reason that Colossians 1 tells us as to why Jesus is to have first place in our lives. And if the first one didn't convince you, this will. And that is because of what he has done. Because of what he's done. So two things the text tells us, powerful things that Jesus has done for you and me that changes everything when it comes to his primacy in our lives. It first tells us that he created us 
and made us in his image. So look at verses 16 and 17 again. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow! There's a lot of, uh, of little words there that, that carry a lot of meaning. Like when it says that Jesus, all things were created by Jesus. In other words, he was the agent of creation. He actually did it. And then it tells us all things were created for Jesus. He's the goal of creation so that we might find our satisfaction and sufficiency in knowing him. And then it tells us that all of creation holds together because of Jesus. He sustains it, kind of like a swimming pool, that if you pull the plug, all the water drains out. He could pull the plug any time on life, and it would all drain out, but he doesn't. He's keeping the plug there. And so check this out. Most people know today that God created the heavens and the earth and all that it contains. But my question for you is this. Do we realize that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity also is described as the primary agent and goal of creation himself. And so Jesus Christ is the one who made you. Creation was his act. He made you. And if we're reading this right, he made you for himself, by himself, and you hold together because of his sovereign creation activity in your life. And so why does he want first place? Because he made you, and he made you for himself, that your soul might run on faith relationship in him. And then notice me a second reason of what he has done for us, and it's a reason as to why he wants first place, and that is that he has redeemed you and saved you from your sin that has separated you from him. This is really the main point of the passage. Look at verses 13 and 14 and then 20. It says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Two words you don't want to miss there. Two words that, that forever seal the deal when it comes to Jesus' authority in your life based on what he has done. And those are the words redemption and reconcile. Redemption and reconcile. That word redemption literally means a ransom paid in full. A, a, a ransom. So somebody grabs your kid and you pay a full ransom, you get your kid back, that's a ransom. And what the Bible is telling us here, don't miss this, is that sin has held captive all of humanity. And as a result of that, all of humanity is now in the domain of darkness and unforgiveness with God. So sin has caused darkness and separation, and that's why all people feel separated from God from birth. And something had to be done to bring us back, to provide a ransom. And Jesus and his death are it. Don't miss this. Only Jesus and his death can bring you redemption. Only Jesus and his death on a cross for you can take you out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light, out of the domain of separation, into the domain of intimacy with God. Philosophy can't do that. Morality can't do that. Religion can't do that. 
And so the Bible says that when it comes to your sin and God, you can't think your way out of it. You can't rationalize your way out of it. You can't work your way out of it. You can't even use religion to get yourself out of it. Only the redemption that's offered through Jesus Christ can save us from darkness and a life without God. Why Jesus? Because of what he has done. He has redeemed us, and only he has redeemed us. So only he has a claim on our life. And then very quickly, notice that the fruit of this redemption is reconciliation, peace through his shed blood between us and God. That word reconcile there is a wonderful word in the New Testament. It literally means to take away enmity. It pictures friction between two parties, kind of a a sandpaper relationship, and the word reconcile literally means to take away that friction. Kind of like when you reconcile your checkbook because you have friction between how much you've spent and how much you have. And so you need to reconcile it to make sure that the debits and the credits are now equal. What the Bible says is that when Jesus came, his death brought reconciliation to our lives with God. So on a relational level, for those who follow Jesus and embrace him, they now have peace with God through Christ's work on the cross. What has Jesus done? He's brought us back to God uh, through redemption and reconciliation. And the point is, folks, is that in a world uh, that is trying to always give us multiple choice for everything, and when it comes to faith issues, they want it to be multiple choice as well, the Bible comes along and says, I'm sorry, it's not multiple choice, it's fill in the blank. And they even say, I'll give you the answer to the fill in the blank. The answer is... Jesus. That's what the Bible, I know I'm I'm treating you all like first graders with this, but hopefully you'll start to see this. We live in a world today, you watch Oprah, you watch a PBS special, a History Channel special, read Time Magazine around Easter, and everybody wants it to be multiple choice. We want everything to be inclusive and multicultural, and and I get all that. I'd like that too at times. I like multiple choice. But along comes the Bible, and it says that in our sin, in our darkness, what our souls most desperately need is to be forgiven by God. And God, who knows you and loves you, has said multiple choice isn't going to help you. Because if you choose your good works, that's not going to work. If you choose religion, that's not going to work. If you choose just to embrace this world, that's not going to work. The only thing that's going to work for you is the provision of my Son, Jesus Christ, who holds claim on your life, but it's not a controlling claim, it's a loving claim, because he loves you. And I got to tell you, as you guys know, I grew up in a world uh, in which it was all multiple choice. I I didn't grow up in a very spiritual home, a very religious home, and and my parents tried to expose me to all different kinds of faith choices and educational choices, and in many ways, I, I I had a wonderful, wonderful upbringing. But I can remember at the age of 16, 17, and 18, as I was starting to come alive a little bit intellectually, really wrestling with this fact of, uh, isn't it kind of narrow-minded that Christians say that Jesus is the only way? I mean, in the world I grew up in, that seemed awfully, awfully arrogant. Until I did two things. One, I started looking at the evidence and the rationality behind that claim. And here's what I could not escape. If he is indeed God, and if I am indeed a sinner... And if I can't get out on my own, but I need his divine help, 
then it would make sense that Jesus Christ is the only way because in history that's how God has chosen to reach out to me. And so that, that rationally made sense. But then even further, I looked inside my own heart when I was a young man. And I said, gosh, my heart longs to know God. My heart longs for forgiveness. I'm tired of the guilt. I'm tired of the impurity. I'm tired of living distant from God. And if knowing Jesus can bring me closer to God, then though I might still have all these questions and how he can be the only way and all of that, I won't argue anymore. And sure enough, I accepted Jesus, as you guys know, into my life when I was 17. And I had an immediate connection with God. I actually still continued to sin way too much. We'll talk about that in a minute here. And yet every time I'd sin now, like before I sinned, I would just kind of water off a duck's back and I'd sort of shrug it off. Now, after I accepted Jesus, whenever I'd sin, what would I feel? Guilt. A lot of it. I was like, what's that about? And my campus life would say, well, duh, it's like the Holy Spirit telling you that when you sin now as a follower of Jesus Christ, he's going to let you know about it. And you need to continue to get right with him. But I couldn't argue that. The experience was overwhelming. And so going back to our original question, what has Jesus done that might cause some offense? Hopefully you're seeing this. He claims lordship over all of life by the fact that he is creator of all and by the fact that he has provided redemption and reconciliation when he visited this planet. And so maybe now you can see why the mere presence of Jesus or the mere mention of his name can either cause a great sigh of relief for those of us who know him and have experienced his forgiveness, or it messes with one's own self-sufficiency in life. It messes with the fact that you're trying to live life on your own, and along comes God and says you were made for another purpose. And then when we get this, the only question left for you and I then is, well, what does this mean then for us today? I mean, how does this affect you and me day to day, hopefully as believers, that living here in the Phoenix area in the year 2012 with all the things going on with our jobs and our family and our neighborhood and all of that? How does this affect us? And this is point two on your outline. I only got two points today. And this is what it means for us today. It means Jesus wants first place in everything in your life. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever here today, the message is the same. Jesus wants first place in everything in your life. Look with me at how Colossians 1 verse 18, at kind of the pinnacle of this text here, says it about Jesus this way. It says in verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. Two words to focus on there. Everything and preeminent. That word preeminent there is the Greek word pertuo, and it literally means to be first in rank, to be first in influence, to have first place. It's not a complicated term. And so in the army, this would be a general. On a football team, this would be the quarterback or the captain. In the business world, this would be the CEO or the chairman of the board. You all understand this term. Just think of the big cheese in whatever organization you're involved with, and Jesus is saying here, Colossians is saying that Jesus Christ is the general, the captain, the quarterback, the CEO, the chairman of the board, whatever picture you have, he's the Lord. And notice then that it says in everything. That's a fascinating word. And you know what it literally means? Say it with me. Everything. 
Not one area of our life, now this is going to be our take-home challenge, not one area of our life should be exempt from the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ, our creator and redeemer. And now we're getting on the brass tacks. Now we're getting down to the real issue. Because you see, as far as I see it, folks, of, of all the Christians in North America, and I, I know this will be a very simplistic reduction, but I, but I think there's basically a, a couple different kinds of Christians walking around in the world today. And it's a very, very subtle but very serious distinction. You see, both of these groups of Christians believe in Jesus Christ. They both go to church and are somewhat involved. They both speak the same Christian lingo they both read the same Bible. They both know the same people. They both give to the same causes, whether it be Young Life or missions or inner city ministries. They, uh, but on the inside, where things matter most, there's a huge difference between these two kinds of Christians. And it all comes down to who is really in control, who's really running the show of one's life. Uh, let me try to show you this. I'm going to put two circles here on the screen right now as we wrap up here and go to the communion table. Give me the first one here. And I'm going to call it Christian Y and then Christian C. So first, let's talk about Christian Y. You'll notice, and the second circle will be very similar, you'll notice on the circle here that I've simply listed eight things on the outside of the circle there representing eight areas of your life. So if you start up there at noon, that's your thought life, and then go to one o'clock, that's your family and then at 3 o'clock, that's your work life. And then you got your community there at 5 o'clock. You got your relationships and friendships down there at 6. You got your money and material life there at, at about 7 o'clock. At 9 o'clock, you got your entertainment and hobbies and all the things that you're into, golf. Then what's there at 11 o'clock? Your, your church. And, and those would be, arguably be eight areas of our lives that, that everybody who calls themselves a Christian is involved with. And, and so you got vaca vacations and family and dinner and, and sport events with your family and, and all the things you do with your family. Most of you are hardworking, responsible people. Uh, most of us are involved somewhat in the community, whether it's our HOA or the Lions Club or sports events or something. All of us have friends, I assume, that we love and that we care for and that we, we've chosen based on interests or affinity or what have you. This is Scottsdale, so even with the economy being bad, plenty of people still have healthy 401k savings or IRAs and a few cars and some toys and we give money to charities and church and things like that. And then you got your entertainment life where you, know, you go to TVs or golf or movies or reading or sporting events. And then most of us are involved somewhat in church. You're here today. That's a good start. And so we're involved in church at a regular level. And then we're always thinking and churning throughout our lives. And, and so you look at this typical person from the outside. Now, don't miss this. And they seem awfully well-rounded, don't they? I mean, this would be the quintessential American life where you've gotten educated and you've got a good family and you got a good job and you're involved in the community and you got some good friendships and you're doing well financially or at least getting by and you got your hobbies and your interests and don't forget to include church and before you know it this is what Larry Crabb calls good enough Christianity you're feeling awfully good about your life you're well-rounded you're compartmentalized everything seems copacetic except for one thing 
Who's at the center of that circle? You. You're at the center of that circle. You see, Christian Y does a fairly good job of juggling all of these commitments and activities, taking daily control of it and managing them as best as he or she can. But notice who's in control of all of these activities. It's you. You're at the center. You're running the show of your life. Now, here's where it's subtle. As best you can for God. And that's the difference. I hear Christians say it all the time, I'm doing the best I can for God. I'm waking up and I'm trying to balance everything and prioritize everything and I'm taking the bull by the horns and I'm pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm doing all of this for God. And I want to grab my Bible and say, show me where it says you should do that. Show me where it says that you should live a well-balanced life for God in all of these areas as if somehow you should take control of your life and you should be the center of it when it comes to who's really calling the shots. Where does it say that in the Bible? I'll give you a hint. It doesn't. And yet this is the way that most North Americans think. Sadly speaking, and I love you guys, and I'm saying all this out of love, it's the way most of y'all think. And you feel good about yourself. And yet it's a false security. Guys, listen, it's the way I think sometimes. I I do, and I'm a pastor. I'm surrounded by Christian stuff. I'm surrounded by the Bible. But if I'm not careful, I can go through an entire day with who on the throne? Me? An entire day where I'm running the church, I'm calling the shots, I'm making sure I have my quiet time, I'm living a well-balanced life, I'm prioritizing everything I should prioritize. And before you know it, I'm at the center of everything. And some of you are saying, well, what does it need to be like, Jamie? Come on, this is confusing. Give me another click here. We're going to add clarity to this right now. Because here's the subtle difference. You see, a Christian who has Jesus Christ as Lord at the center of everything has a subtle difference or twist that makes all the difference when it comes to these eight areas of your life. Let me explain. Think about your thinking and thought life if Jesus Christ is Lord. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Do you realize what a tall order that is? I had trouble doing that just in worship here this morning. I was thinking about all these things going on in my life. I was distracted. I was trying to think about all the things going on with this worship service and what I'm going to do this afternoon and how I'm going to be tired at 3 o'clock and you have to come back at 5 and then the meetings that I have tomorrow and all this stuff's going on in my mind. And I'm thinking, I need to be taking every thought and making it captive to Christ. And I'm in worship right now. I'm supposed to be focusing on Him and Him alone. You see, a Christian who's in the battle, who has Jesus as Lord, is constantly concerned with taking every thought captive Think about a Christian who has Jesus as Lord when it comes to their family. They take Ephesians 5 very seriously. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. They take 1 Timothy 5 seriously in prioritizing one's family and raising one's kids. And yet family, for a Christian who has Jesus on the throne, is not the first place. Jesus is first place. And so you love your family with everything in you, but you realize that the greatest gift you can give to your family is not a financial heritage. It's not even a good college education, though those things might be important. It's Jesus. He's the greatest gift you can give your family. Think about your job if you're submitted to the Lordship of Christ Christian. 
Your job is not just a way to make money and advance yourself, which is how most Christians see it, but you see your job as a real ministry, submitted to Jesus Christ every day. In fact, I would argue that if you're a Christian under the Lordship of Christ, that, that distinction between secular and sacred becomes very blurred in a good way. Because all of a sudden now, you're not concerned about whether you're at church or at home or at work. Everything's submitted to Christ. And everything's an opportunity to be used by Jesus. Think about how you approach your community under the Lordship of Christ. How many times have you heard somebody say that they're buying, I know I'm going to step on toes here, they're buying that second home for the Lord. How many times have we heard somebody say that? And, and I never say this because I'm much more bold up here than I am in person. I really am. But whenever I hear somebody say, I'm buying that for the Lord, I wonder what that means. Because in my observation, 98% of it is for you. It's for self. And you know what I said? I said this years ago. I said, if that's the case, then just be honest about it. That's okay. Just say, I'm buying it for me. And you're not welcome. I'm buying it for me. But, but don't sit there and say you're buying it for the Lord unless... It's really submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you're interested in using it for the glory of God, not just for your escape. Do you see the difference here? People have things submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Even their home, their community, everything is under his Lordship. Relationships take on new meaning because the kind of friendships you have and those you draw close to are going to absolutely be under the Lordship of Jesus I'm telling you, we're going to talk about this in June. Even the way you approach money is radically different under the Lordship of Christ. I remember years ago after I first became a Christian, I was visiting some Christian friends down in North Carolina, the Bible Belt, you know, the, the strength of Christianity. And uh, I was talking with this gal, and uh, we were talking about money. And, and she said, you know, Jamie, the most important thing is that every month God gets his 10% and we get our 90%. She said, that's the way it should be. And I hadn't even gone to seminary yet. I just read the Bible a couple of times, and I thought, I'm not sure that that's really what Jesus meant by generous and sacrificial, and that when your money is submitted to the Lordship of Christ, that it's this 90-10 deal. And she was so proud that she was tithing 10% on the gross, because we even got in that argument about gross versus net, you know, and she was all excited about that. And I've learned over the years, guys, that all my money is God's. How about you? All of it's God's. And I don't just stop at saying, oh, God got his 10%. I pray about the 90% too. Lord, what would you have me do with that? What do you want me to do with that to honor you? Because you're the one in control. Our hobbies are submitted to Christ because we want to be pure in all that we do. Our church takes on new character. It's not just a place to go to, but it's now the living and breathing body of Christ where we get fed spiritually and grow in relationality with each other. Are you starting to see? It's a subtle difference when Christ is at the center, but it's the main difference. You can have two kinds of Christians walking around today, one with you at the center and one with Christ at the center. And the real Christian, I'll tell you, and I know some of you are going, what does he mean by the real Christian? I'll let you figure that one out. The real Christian is the guy who affirms or gal Galatians 2.20 that says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so today is a very different Sunday. It's a very different message than what we talked about last week with Dr. Grudem. 
Last week with Dr. Grudem, if you remember, we were very concerned about salvation and have you made a commitment to Jesus Christ for eternal life and experienced his initial forgiveness. And it was a great message for our church. This message today is about lordship and that even if you do call yourself a Christian today, is he Lord? Is he leader? Is he general? Is he CEO? Is he chairman of the board of your life? Or are you just still playing games? Is it just the church thing for you? Or maybe the Bible study thing? Or giving God is 10% of everything and then you get the 90%. He wants it all because he loves you. He made you. He redeemed you. And he reconciled you. And like the hound of heaven, he'll continue to hound until you give him your all. Let's pray. Father, we're going to go to the communion table right now, and this is a great, great day for us to pause and ponder our lives anew and afresh. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are some, if not many of us, that are giving cogent thought here right now to the composition of our life and our heart and our mind and our will. Lord, I know I do. Uh, Troy was right earlier, Lord, when he said that it's easy to talk a big game when it comes to absolute submission, much harder one to live it. And so, Lord, I pray at the very least that today would be a day that we re-up when it comes to our commitment to your lordship and making you the center of our lives. And that, Lord, even for us veteran Christians who have been walking with you for a long time, today might be another step, God, when it comes to giving you the supremacy in our lives that you deserve. God, I pray at the very most that today might be a defining moment for some of us. That like I did, Lord, at certain points in my Christian life, we might see today as a day to, to significantly take a climb to the next plateau when it comes to submitting to you. And that we would say enough is enough, draw the line in the sand, and stop living for ourselves and begin to live for and with you as Lord. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that like a good father, all you want is us to be close-knit in your family because you know that that's what best, what's best for our soul at the end of the day. Meet us at this communion table, we pray now. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.